In this life, there are many things that we can invest in. God has given each and every one of us a specific period of time here on earth. And during that time, we can invest our time, our energies, and our finances in a myriad of different ways. If you desire to build wealth, you can invest in the stock market. The stock market has produced and yielded a positive return for many individuals. However, when you invest in it, there is no guarantee that you will receive a positive return. If you follow the news lately, since November 2021, over $2 trillion has been lost in the crypto market. Elon Musk, the richest man in the world, one of the most intelligent, he himself has lost over $66 billion. Therefore, there is no guarantee of a positive return when you invest in the things of this world. The only area of investment that will lead you to yielding a guaranteed positive return is when you invest in the things of God. I'm here to tell you that there's a guaranteed positive return only when you invest in the principles of God. There's a guaranteed positive return only when you invest in the kingdom of God. There's a guaranteed positive return only when you invest in the eternity of God. And wisdom should compel us to make this investment because it is the only area in which we can yield a positive return. There's a guaranteed increase in the return of a godly investment. And that's the title of the sermon that I'll be preaching today, The Return on Godly Investment. And this particular sermon is based upon the scriptures found in Galatians chapter 6, verses 7 through 10. So please open up your Bibles to the book of Galatians chapter 6, verses 7 through 10. Now this particular book was written by the Apostle Paul right around A.D. 49. And he wrote it to the believers at the churches in Galatia. Those believers were under theological attack by the Judaizers. The Judaizers were professing Christians who taught the heresy that in order to be a Christian, you must be circumcised. This was an abomination of the gospel. And Paul recognized the great threat that it posed to the threat to um, the faith of those believers in Galatia. And he wielded this epistle as a sword in contention for the faith. He wielded it as a sword in that battle against heresy. 
he sought to refute the egregious attack on the faith of those Galatian believers. That egregious attack not only exists then, but it also exists now. Because there are false teachers in the church, even in this day. And that is normally where the greatest threat to our faith comes from. It doesn't come from the outside world. It normally comes from false teachers who are wolves in sheep's clothing. And therefore, as Paul directs these believers to protect themselves against this theological attack, I do believe that the prescriptives found in this particular section of Paul's epistle not only applies to those believers in Galatia, but it also applies to you and I. Therefore, I think it would be good for us to walk through these scriptures upon this day. And to give you some greater context, I'll start out by reading in chapter 6, verse 1. Now here Paul says, Brethren, even if anyone is caught in any trespass, you who were spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, each one looking to yourself so that you too will not be tempted. Bear one another's burdens and thereby fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. But each one must examine his own work, and then he will have reason for boasting in regard to himself alone and not in regard to another. For each one will bear his own load. The one who was taught the word is to share all good things with the one who teaches him. And when those first six verses, Paul is directing those believers in Galatia as to how to restore their sinning brothers. And he does this after he focuses on the theme in, chap- in chapters 1 through 5 of teaching the truth of justification by faith and the freedom that the Galatians have in Jesus Christ. And after he then encourages them as to how to restore a sinning brother, he then directs those sinning brothers or those fallen brothers to not trample on the grace of God and the freedom that they have in Christ. And he goes on to say in verse 7, Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, this he will reap. For the one who sows in his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the spirit will from the spirit reap eternal life. Let us not lose heart in doing good. For in due season, we will reap if we do not grow weary. So then, while we have opportunity, let us do good to all people, and especially to those who are of the household of the faith. Now here, when Paul opens up in verse 7 and he says, Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. With that phrase, do not be deceived, Paul is issuing a warning to those believers in Galatia. And the warning is that they should not be deceived. In other words, they should not be fooled. They should not be bamboozled. 
they should not be beguiled by the Judaizers. These Judaizers who I mentioned were professing Christians. In other words, they weren't genuine believers. And they were teaching the legalistic fallacy that in order for a Christian to be a genuine believer, they must engage in circumcision and in following the Mosaic law. And this was an abomination of the gospel. This was violence being done to sound doctrine. And Paul recognized the great danger that it posed to the faith of these believers in Galatia. And therefore, he sought to refute this egregious attack on the faith of these Galatian believers. He sought to refute this theological attack that was being launched against them. For he saw exactly what it could do to their faith. He saw how it could shape their faith in a significant manner, especially those who were new to the faith, especially those who were not steeped in the word. He recognized that they could easily fall for this misteaching of the gospel, this great abomination. These same believers who had received freedom in Jesus Christ were now being placed back in bondage to the law. And Paul sought to refute it. For as he says in Galatians 2, 15 through 16, he says, for we ourselves are Jews by birth. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. For by works of the law, no one is justified. So Paul was staunched in his stance against the believers being placed back in bondage to the law. But he was even more staunched against these believers thinking that they could practice the sin of legalism and not be disciplined by God. Listen, he was staunch against these believers thinking that they could save themselves through their good works, that they could save themselves through their good deeds. And Paul would have none of it. And therefore, he says to these Galatians, and ultimately, he says to you and I, God is not mocked. In other words, God will not be disrespected. He will not be dishonored. He will not be devalued. His position of authority will not be usurped. God will not be disrespected in any manner. And therefore, we as believers should not think that we can save ourselves through our own good works. We should not think that we can save ourselves through our own good deeds, right? We should not think that we can come to church on Sundays and be saved because of our faithful attendance. 
We should not think that we could be saved just because we're good husbands to our wives, a good fathers to our children. We should not think that we could be saved just because we're upstanding members in our community or because we give to the church or because we give to charity. Salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Sola gratia, sola fide, sola Cristo. This was the rallying cry of the Protestant Reformation. And it is the rallying cry even in this day. Because the only way that a person can be saved is if they believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, that he died for their sins, and that God raised him for the dead. This is why it says in Ephesians 2.8, it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works. So no one can boast. Because to boast in our own works is to mock God's authority over salvation. It's to mock God's sovereign authority over our sanctification. It's to mock God's sovereign authority over our future glorification. And this would be a grave misrepresentation of the truth. For man cannot save himself. Man can only be saved through their belief in Jesus Christ. And therefore, Paul, in this letter, he's having none of it, y'all. And most importantly, God will have none of it. So after Paul makes this evident, he then goes on to state in the rest of verse, eight, verse 7, he says, For whatever a man sows, this he will also reap. Now here, Paul is using the law of agriculture to form a parallel with one of the spiritual laws that God has imparted. The law of agriculture simply states that if you plant a seed, it will produce a like tree. In other words, if you plant an apple seed, it's going to produce what? That's right. If you plant an orange seed, it's going to produce what? You can't plant an apple seed and expect it to produce an orange tree because the law of agriculture is fixed. It is absolute. It is immutable. And in the same way, the spiritual law of sowing and reaping as established by our Heavenly Father, it is also fixed and it is also immutable. This spiritual law is immovable for God is the one who has set it forth. This is the law of cause and effect. And what it looks like is that what it means is that whatever action we engage in, it produces a natural consequence. Therefore, whatever seed we plant in our minds, whatever seed we plant in our spirit, whatever seed we plant in our lives, it will produce a direct result. Therefore, if you are saved, sanctified, filled with the Holy Spirit, like we like to say, and if you're 
obedient and humbled before the word of God. The Holy Spirit, if you are walking with him in this manner, will produce the fruits of the spirit in your life. Therefore, if we commit to being loving, it will produce love in our lives. If we commit to being peaceful, it will produce peace in our lives. If we commit to being kind, it will produce kindness in our lives. If we commit to being righteous, it will produce righteousness in our lives. If we commit to being holy, it will produce holiness in our lives. Yes is right. But the opposite of that is also true. For as it says in Job 4, 8, the man who plows iniquity, the one who sows trouble will harvest it. This undergirds the truth that if you practice sin, it will produce sinfulness in your life. If you start trouble, it will bring tribulation in your life. For as it says in Romans 2.9, there will be tribulation for every man who does evil. And there will be good for every man who does peace. Amen? Amen. Well, after Paul makes this spiritual law of reaping and sowing that is immovable, after he makes it evident, he then goes on to state in verse 8 to these Galatian believers, he says, For the one who sows his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. Now, the word flesh being used there is a direct reference to our fallen humanity. It's a direct reference to the physical tent that our inner spirit resides in. It's a direct um, representation of the physical tent that encases our inner being, our inner man. And because our physical tent is in a fallen state, it produces a multiplicity of carnal desires. And these desires stand in direct contradiction to the expressed righteous will of God. They stand in direct contradiction to the righteous standard that God has set forth for every person to submit to. And to sow to the flesh is to not submit to the righteous will of God, but to submit to the evil desires of our fallen humanity. This is comparable to what the Apostle Paul states in Romans 7, 18, when he says, for I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. For I desire to do what is right, but I am not able to carry it out. See, Paul recognized, he was very honest with himself. As great as he was, as magnificently as God used him to plant churches, Paul recognized that he was still encased in that fallen flesh. And therefore, he recognized the sinfulness of his fallen condition. 
and he acknowledged that he struggled with his fallen humanity. And in the same way, those Galatian believers, they struggled with their fallen humanity. They engaged in a sin of the flesh. Specifically and primarily, they engaged in the sin of circumcision. They placed their circumcision before the sacrifice of Christ. They placed their circumcision and trampled on the grace of God. They used their circumcision to deliver themselves into eternal life. And this was a great wrong being done to the truth of the gospel. They engaged in this sin of the flesh and it produced a multiplicity of other sins of the flesh. And the Apostle Paul documented what it produced. Because if you've read through Galatians chapter 5, he documents the manifold sins that that one sin of the flesh led to. In Galatians 5, 19 through 21. For there he says, and he points out to those Galatians, he says, for the sins of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, jealousy, divisions, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. So Paul's warning to those Galatians was clear. His admonition was very pronounced. And as they stand warned, we also stand warned by the great apostle Paul. We stand warned that if we sow into our flesh, we will reap the very corruption that the Galatians reaped. We will reap the corruption of sinfulness in our lives. Because all it takes is one sin that goes unrepented for. Because ain't that how sin works? Ain't that how the devil works? You give him a foothold and he sets up shop in your whole body. Come on now. You give him a foothold in your marriage and he sets up shop in the entirety of it. You give him a foothold and he knocks down the door and sets up shop in your entire home. And therefore... We must be on guard. We must protect ourselves against engaging in sins of the flesh. But as ominous as that sounds, there's good news, right? Because we are the church, right? We're in the business of good news, right? So Paul does come with the good news after giving that ominous warning. And that good news is found in the second half of verse 8 when he says, but, I love those buts in the Bible, amen, (laughs) amen, but the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. Mm. Those should be sweet words to a believer. And when Paul uses the phrase, soul to the spirit, it's equivalent to him saying that the believer 
should invest in the things of God. It's equivalent to him saying that the believer should invest in the kingdom of God. It's equivalent to him saying that the believer should invest in the eternity of God. This is Paul's great proclamation because with that phrase, it's equivalent to him saying that we should walk by the spirit. For as he says in Galatians 5.16, walk by the spirit and you will not justify or gratify the flesh. Amen? It is equivalent to him saying what he said in Colossians 3.2 when he says, look to the things that are above and not to the things that are on earth. Set your mind on the things that are above and not in the things that are on earth. I remember Snoop Dogg had a saying, right? I got my mind on my money and my money on my mind. Y'all remember that? <laughs> yeah, I remember that. But listen, for the believer, there's a greater ethos. For the believer, our ethos should be, I got my mind on the spirit and I got the spirit on my mind. Come on now. Our ethos should be, I got my mind on Jesus and I got Jesus on my mind. Our ethos should be, I got my mind on the Messiah and I got the Messiah on my mind. Come on now, I got my mind on the Father and I got the Father on my mind. This is how the believer should think. This should be our song each and every day, every second of every minute that we're alive here on earth. Our mind should be in our Heavenly Father. Our mind should be on the things that are above and not on the things that are here on the earth. We should be firmly invested in the things of God. We should sow to the spirit and not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of our mind so that we may prove what the will of God is. And the will of God is for us to sow to the spirit. The will of God is for us to sow to his kingdom. And when we do, we will reap, as the Apostle Paul says, eternal life. Now, the words eternal life there, they're not speaking about our duration of time in heaven. The words eternal life there is speaking about our quality of life in Jesus Christ. And that quality of life begins the moment that we accept him as our Lord and Savior. That quality of life begins the moment we receive him because at that moment, the Holy Spirit comes into our lives and he resides in us and he convicts us he walks with us and ultimately if we're obedient to him and we walk with him as he walks with us he then produces those fruits of the spirit that i talked about earlier he produces joy in our lives he produces peace in our lives he produces patience in our lives he produces kindness in our lives, righteousness in our lives. This is what the Holy Spirit produces in our lives when we sow to the Spirit. This 
is the eternal life that we reap. So we should commit ourselves to sowing to the spirit that we may reap this wonderful, blessed quality of life that the Apostle Paul alludes to. Amen? And after Paul proclaims those principal truths, he then moves on to verse 9, and he echoes those faithful words to the Galatians, but not only to them, by the Holy Spirit, to you and I in this day and time. And he says in verse 9, let us not lose heart in doing good. Now here, Paul is addressing a common Christian dynamic because one of the most challenging Christian virtues for us to master is having patience in the Lord. One of the most difficult Christian characteristics for us to embrace and exhibit is to wait on God. Because so many of us as believers, we've been sowing for a long period of time and we haven't reaped the harvest that we thought we would reap in the time that we taught, thought it would come. How many can testify that there are certain things that you've been praying on for weeks, for months, sometimes for years, and God hasn't said no. He simply hasn't brought it to pass. And because of this, we are prone to lose heart. The words lose heart there in the Greek carries the meaning of being exhausted to the point of giving up. And this is our natural human response in this dynamic. Because of our constitution, this is how we are prone to respond. But praise God, he is on mission. He knows our frame. And therefore, he has given us the Holy Spirit to empower us. And he has given us the words of scripture to embolden us. And this is why the Hebrew says in Hebrews 12, 1 through 3, let us with endurance run the race set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus Christ, the author and perfecter of our faith. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross. Consider him so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. This is the remedy for us not to grow weary and to lose heart. We are to fix our eyes on the author and perfecter of our faith. We are to fix our eyes on the shepherd and bishop of our souls. We are to fix our eyes on our heavenly Lord who intercedes on our behalf. We are to fix our eyes on him and consider the great lengths that he went through in order to receive the harvest that is us as believers. Jesus Christ came out of the wonders of heaven onto this earth, was spat upon, treated wrongly, even though he was the God of all creation. He endured great humiliation. And ultimately, he endured the Christ, the, the cross, knowing that we would be his harvest. So when we grow weary, we should consider him so that we'll be able to echo those 
famous words spoken by the Apostle Paul towards the end of his life. I have fought the good fight. I have kept the faith. I have finished the race. In the future, there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness. Listen, if we do not lose heart, we also will be able to echo those faithful words. So therefore, we should not lose heart in doing that which is righteous before our heavenly father. Amen? Oh, Paul then brings his, this part of his soliloquy to a close in verse 10 when he goes on to prescribe and state, so then, while we have opportunity, let us do good to all people. And with the use of that phrase, while we have opportunity, Paul is not indicating that during our lives, there are intermittent times where we should choose to do good to others. He's not indicating there are specific opportunities siloed away during certain years of our lives where we should invest in serving others. No, the meaning of that phrase in the Greek carries the interpretation of the entirety of our lives. So here Paul is compelling those Galatian believers and you and I that for the entirety of our existence here on earth, we should seek to do good. For the entirety of our existence here on this particular planet, we should seek to serve others. We should not choose only specific times because the true meaning of this phrase carries the idea that we should have the perspective that our lives are not fixed and limited. And these opportunities that we have, our lives being that they are fixed and limited, the opportunities that we have, they surmount through the entirety of our existence. Therefore, Paul encourages those believers in Galatia and you and I to seize every moment of our lives to serve God, to seize every moment of our lives, to build up his kingdom. And therefore, when he says, let us do, those particular words in the Greek carries the meaning of being diligent, of being active. So what Paul is imploring each and every one of us to do here is to be active and diligent in serving others. It's to be active and diligent in serving within the church. It's to be active and diligent in serving in the kingdom of God. And when he says do good, the word good there implies that we should be doing both that which is practical good and that which is spiritual good. We should endeavor to help those who are in need both practically and spiritually. And after Paul makes that point, he then goes on to say that we should do good to all people. Now, with that statement, Paul is making it clear that we should not exclude serving people 
from different class. We should not exclude our service to others based upon their position in society. We should not exclude serving others because of their age. We should serve all races, all ethnicities, all cultures. However, what Paul is really getting at here is that we should not exclude serving unbelievers. Because as you know, we as believers, we can get very clickish, can't we? <laughs> you know, um, you know, sometimes, you know, we look at unbelievers and they seem foreign to us because we've forgotten where God brought us from. But Paul is saying here, listen, those unbelievers, they were just like you. And just as you needed practical help and spiritual help, so you should also help them. Therefore, as believers, when it comes to unbelievers, we should provide them both with bread and with the bread of the gospel. We should help them both practically and spiritually as we were once helped. And after Paul makes that clear, he then brings verse 10 to a close. And he says, and especially to those who are of the household of the faith. Now here, Paul is directing us that we should go out of our way to do good to our brothers and sisters in Christ. He is compelling us to give serious consideration to those who are of the household of the faith. Because one of the marks of a genuine believer is his love for his brothers and sisters in Christ. One of the marks of a genuine love for God is to love your brothers and sisters in Christ. One of the marks that you are truly saved is the love that you have for the family of God. This is why it says in 1 John 4, 2, it makes it clear, the one who loves God should also love his brother. Therefore, we should invest in doing good to the family of God because when we invest in doing good to the family of God, when we invest in the things of God, we receive blessings here on earth and in heaven to come. When we invest in the things of God, we receive a return on our godly investment. And I'm here to tell you, the return of a godly investment is the blessing of joy. The return of a godly investment is the blessing of love. The return of a godly investment is the blessing of peace. The return of a godly investment is the blessing of patience. The return of a godly investment is the blessing of righteousness. The return of a godly investment is the blessing of favor. The return of a godly investment is the blessing of honor. The return of a godly investment is the blessing of glory. The return of a godly investment is the blessing of eternity. The return of a godly investment is the crown of righteousness that awaits each and every one of us when we get to heaven. Amen? Let us pray. Dear God, we thank you for your faithful words.
although they cut us to our heart, you are omniscient and you know exactly what we need. Therefore, we thank you for the inspired words that you have given to the Apostle Paul, to the Galatians, and ultimately to us. And I ask that you please help us there, God, to embrace these truths, to embrace these principles, that we may sow to the Spirit and reap eternal life. In Jesus' matchless name we pray. Amen.